Okay, the age of exploration. So at the same time that the age of absolutism is taking root in Europe, the same time that kings and queens are becoming absolute monarchs with absolute control over their subjects, at the same time that nations are beginning to form out of what were uh, previously loosely tribal areas, at the same time that all of this is going on, we have Louis XIV, same time that his long reign is taking place, and even before it and even after it, we have this so-called age of exploration, which um, I would bet um, you're probably more familiar with because of world cultures than anything else. Because in world cultures, you probably looked extensively at how Europeans contacted other cultures in Africa and Asia and saw the effects of European um, contact and asked questions about that. So this would be somewhat familiar to you. So the age of exploration. Okay, so what's the historical setting for the age of exploration? Europe needed trade. As it comes out of the Black Death and it goes through the Renaissance, you know the great bankers of Europe, like the Medici, are beginning to expand their scope and reach. And over time, as the population begins to rise again, people want to begin to consume things. Things are starting to show up all over the place. And as Europeans become sophisticated about the rest of the world, uh, largely through contact uh, with the Middle East and Asia through the Crusades, and their scope begins to broaden, they begin to desire some of those things that otherwise would not have been available to them. And we've known for a long time through the many stories that we tell and pass down of uh, the great explorations for spices into the East. It's all rather sort of trite and, and kind of small time. Uh, but here we're going to expand on that considerably and we're gonna look really hard at what the real outcome of that. Uh, previously, Columbus, yes, 1492, he sailed the ocean blue, he went and he discovered America. Well, not really. He actually thought that he was in India, but he was only half a planet away from it, uh, and never really knew that he was not in India. But nevertheless, he discovers this so-called new world question. Why would we call it, why did Europeans call it the new world when it was already occupied. So we're going to look at this question of, of what we would call thematically a clash of cultures as Europeans reach out and attempt to achieve certain goals. They're going to come in contact with cultures and we're going to look at that really closely. Okay? So Europe wanted trade. The world is starting to be divided up into these independent spheres, Europe, Asia, Africa, the, the Near East, the Middle East, and the, the limited contact that had, uh, that had happened before gave Europeans enough of a taste of what was out there that they wanted to pursue it. And also, Viking contact with North America long before Columbus had given Europeans, at least Northern Europeans, an idea that there was a landmass out there um, that was uninhabited to them or not habited by um, civilized peoples, um, and that information had trickled down into Europe and had given them the idea that perhaps there was something out there. So again, just to recap, so the Black Death, a third to a half to two-thirds of Europe's population, depending on who, who's counting, disappears. As you know, many of you argue that that gives rise to the Renaissance. We see 
new inventions, especially in agriculture, that give rise to new uh, agricultural surpluses, which people then eat, and they get comfortable with the fact that there's actually food around on the table now, and they start to have babies, and the population goes up. And as the population goes up, it begins to get more and more crowded in Europe, especially in the new cities that are developing. And as a result of that, you get this outward pressure to go somewhere. And Africa is not really the place that they go outward to. They push out across the Atlantic, which must have been a really scary prospect because they've never gone that far before, and off into this new world. And then, as they say, the rest is history. Okay. All right. So there are some Renaissance ideas that really influence this age of exploration. Uh, although you may actually still have been taught when, when you were in grade school that people thought that the world was flat, that Columbus and his sailors were brave because they thought the world was flat and were risking sailing off the edge of it and flying into who knows what, dropping off the edge of the earth. In fact, most educated people did not believe that in Europe. That's a myth that Europeans thought that the world was flat. Um, and in many ways, they knew this because contact, as you, as you recall, contact with the Arabic world through texts that had come up uh, through Spain and into Europe and had caused the lights to come back on again. Clearly, the Greeks and the Romans were well aware, Greek and Roman astronomers, that the world was not flat. It just didn't figure. The data didn't work. Um, so amongst educated people, the idea that the world was round was pretty much a given. So that would have given them plenty of uh, impetus to want to go out and sail around its roundness and to see what was out there. And of course, with little sporadic contacts with other lands over time, and in some cases, like for example, Marco Polo going off to China and then coming back and telling, spinning his stories for Southern Europeans, all of those individual anecdotes which are then copied and printed through Gutenberg's printing press, disseminated around Europe, it would have given people an idea that there was much more out there than just their small Europe. Okay? So the Renaissance really contributes to this. Now, economic developments then, trade routes expand. Europeans develop a taste for Asian goods, especially spices, and we're going to talk about that a little bit more in a second. And then, of course, with the development of banking, you get the financial support for people who are going to take up these voyages and we're going to head off to these so-called new worlds. So again, that question of which comes first, a renaissance in art or a, a, uh, a series of economic developments, and I think it was uh, you, Caroline, you know what I just realized? We forgot to read the sample take-home essay that I put in there. Oh, well. You can read it on your own, um, that making that argument that there had to be a financial underpinning before all that art was produced, the same thing might have been true here, that when you have an economic explosion and a lot of surplus money, then you see people taking the risks that they might not otherwise have taken with their money to send explorers out there to gain commodities that would have been truly valuable to Europeans for the purposes now of doing something that otherwise was not on their minds before, and that is making money, okay? So now because banking was like developed and stuff, people like decided to go out? People decide to, to not only go out, but they're approaching these bankers and asking for loans, and the bankers are thinking to themselves, is this a risky venture? 
am I going to actually underwrite this explorer who's going to go out and says he's going to bring back a particular spice from Asia. If he does and he's successful and he sells that spice at a profit, then I get my money back plus interest. So for the bankers, there was a reason to do this, although there was plenty of risk involved. But you're much more likely, Bianca, to, to take that risk if you've got lots of money to loan. So as we start to see the banking system develop, you start to see more risks taken. Okay, now another reason for the age of exploration or one of those factors that plays in, of course, are new technologies. Now this looks like an innocuous image of a ship, yeah, so what? But in fact, this might be as revolutionary as Gutenberg's printing press. You're like, how can that be? Well, if you look at this ship, previously, European ships were all square-rigged. So look up for one sec. They're all square-rigged, which means that you have a series of square sails that hang on a mast. The only direction that you can go is with the wind, because the wind is pushing into the sail and pushing you forward. You can only go with the wind. If the wind is blowing the wrong direction, you cannot sail into the wind with a square sail. You might be able to sail slightly to the edge of it, but mostly you had to go. That really limits what people can do in their ships. It limits where they can go and when they can go. So from Arabic culture, Europeans learned of this thing called the caraval, which is a curved shell-like sail. And what this allows you to do is to sail um, against the wind at an angle. So the wind is actually blowing off the sail and then bouncing off. And as it blows on that sail, puts pressure, and allows you to keep going forward, back and forth, back and forth, against the prevailing wind. So the prevailing winds at the Atlantic tend to blow from the Americas towards Europe, which would have prevented square-rigged ships from sailing in that direction. You can't sail against the wing. So the caraval, which allowed them to sail at an angle, a geometric angle to the wind, allowed them to make voyages that were not possible before. So once again, the Arabs and their culture come into European culture and pave the way towards uh, a new culture. We've been playing with that theme since way back in term one. So the caraval is a tremendous invention. You can see actually both the square rig and also the caraval sail as well. Okay. Um, another mm, technological development which comes out of, by the way, document 12 that we were looking at a second ago. And you recall from the Medici film where Galileo's watching the pendulum swing back and forth, and he's beginning to think about the concept of time and the constancy of time and how time can be measured and all that, that time becomes a critical factor in figuring out where you are at any place on the planet depending on the sun and how long you've been traveling and what the angle of the horizon is and all of that. And so these navigational technologies, including the astrolabe, this is the astrolabe, which allowed you to measure where you were. Um, you would actually place yourself on the horizon. You create an angle with the sun, and then you could pinpoint yourself on a map if you had the measurement of time, because the winds tended to push you one way or the other. If you could place yourself, lower the risk of, of having something happen to you, being at the wrong place at the wrong time. And then you could actually calculate the length of voyages and figure out how many uh, you know, bananas, how many tons of bananas you needed to take with you or, 
or what other kinds of supplies. You could start to make calculations that otherwise wouldn't have been made, and you can begin to reach further and further away from land and take greater and greater risks. Okay? Also, cartographers who come out of the Renaissance, these are highly specialized uh, artists, cartographers, people who create maps, uh, begin to create more and more accurate maps. This is the Ptolemaic map, which goes back to ancient Greece. Um, then we get to see that this is a Jerusalem map, um, which actually, of course, places Jerusalem and the, the, as the centerpiece of Christianity at the center of the map. But you're starting to see more and more sophisticated um, views of the world. Um, and then you get into the late medieval and Renaissance period, you start to see maps that look much more familiar to us. And as data started to flow back to these cartographers from the explorers, they began to adjust and change and tweak these maps, and they began to get closer and closer to what, what it really is, what the truth of geography is. Um, and this is fantastic stuff for me. Uh, when, we, when I took students on close-up um, this last trip in uh, last March, actually it was, when I took those students on close-up, we went to the National, um, uh, no, not the National Gallery, we went to the uh, 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 National Archives. And in the National Archives, there was an exhibition of ancient maps. And we actually got to see, I know this sounds really geekish, you might not think it was as insane as I did, but we got to see the very first map with the word America written on it. There was no map before it that ever referenced a place called America. Americo Vespucci, the explorer who touched that part of North America, and the cartographers put his name because he was the explorer. They, they named it America. And with the writing of those words on that map, the beginnings of our country are made known. And to stand in front of that thing was just an unbelievable experience. Um, so. We start to see new forms of map making. This is the Mercator projection. And so where before, if you look at a regular map, like this map right here up on the wall, that's not actually accurate. The Mercator projection stretches the map and pulls the map this way, so it actually makes for an accurate representation of what kind of landmass we're looking at. But these are critical because you had to know where you were. You had to know where, what the risks were and where you were traveling. Um, so cartography was absolutely critically important. That's really cool. Okay, so what are they out for? All this stuff is all in the service of what? In, in the service of going out to find commodities that would be of interest to Europeans now that they're past the Black Death and they've experienced the exuberance of the Renaissance and their lives are beginning to change. Um, there's some comfort coming into their lives and there's a desire to have certain things that might make their lives even better. And so they begin to search Asia, and then Africa, and then other lands, the so-called New World, for these particular spices. Now there's one spice in particular that they were after and that's pepper. And pepper, I think you probably know this already, they weren't looking for pepper because of its taste, although that was an unintendedly wonderful side effect or side impact of finding pepper. Because as you know, we put pepper all over everything and we add it to our stews and I won't go on too long because we'll get all hungry and all that. But in reality, what they were looking for was pepper because pepper was the one thing that would stop 
the decay of food. In, in an era before there was any kind of refrigeration, if you took a hunk of meat, if you killed a deer, and you stripped that deer down into its component parts and you had all the different cuts and all of that, if you roll a hunk of meat, try it if you want, at home. Take a hunk of meat, go buy something at Safeway, a nice big roast or something. Buy a big giant, one of those, like 14 of those cans of pepper from Costco. Take a big bowl, roll the meat in that pepper, sink a little hook into it and hang it up in your bedroom. Guarantee you that that meat will be perfectly good a week later. Shocking, I know, because we think that it has to be in the refrigerator, but what pepper does is it creates a barrier to bacteria. In fact, no bacteria worth its salt will ever try to get through a barrier of pepper. It just, it's just a, uh, something that bacteria can't do. So pepper becomes the preservative that allows Europeans to keep these kinds of um, foods longer. And if you can keep them longer, well, then you're going to have more of it. And ah, you can actually take it on your ships with you. Um, if you salt it and pepper it and keep it all ni nicely contained, you know, anybody, have you ever eaten prosciutto? Prosciutto, the ham of, uh, it's, the, it's the right leg of a pig. Yeah. It's always the leg that the pig does not sit down on. And once it's cured, and with brine, which is a, a, a salted water, a saline solution, um, then and it's packed. Actually, that can hang. That could hang here for a year, and it would nothing would ever happen to it. It's the, quite extraordinary what the wisdom of the ancients is with regard to food. Okay, all right, yeah. I thought that was like what salt could do. You know. They didn't actually know yet that salt in a solution where you put where you put a, a, a piece of meat into a saline solution would preserve it. They didn't know that yet. Pepper is the first, then over time they developed the, the saline. Okay, now there's other motivations for going out and exploring. Obviously, for those who were Christian, whether you were Protestant or Catholic, there was the motivation to go out and save souls, to bring those many darker-skinned savages and Asians into the Catholic fold and to bring them into Mother Church. So that's one of the other factors that's pushing Europeans out into the New World. And here's an engraving that shows a priest uh, converting a number of natives. Um, and you're quite familiar with that story, I'm sure, uh, from world cultures. Okay, other motives for exploration. Obviously, there were national motives. Where can we plant our flag? And in order to increase, this is partly the story of Louis XIV and other monarchs in Europe. There's personal glory that comes from being the person who first plants your country's flag. Um, so here we see Columbus um, landing in America. And you see these flags here. And here he is in the center. And of course, he has the sword in one hand. And he has the flag in the other. And here's a moment in which he's planting the national flag. And uh, his ships are in the background. And the remarkable thing about this is how truly uncaring people were about the fact that this land was occupied. If nobody had planted a flag before, then it must not have been owned by anybody. It must not have been claimed by anybody. Current thing that's happening now where you see something similar, um, and I'm going to get to that in a second, that uh, one of the areas that explorers went to was the north. They tried to find the Northwest Passage across the top of what is now the United States, across the top of what is now Canada. They tried to find a waterway that would get them quicker to the Pacific Ocean. But of course, 
you know they can't do that because it's all the tundra, it's all frozen. Well, as of last summer, that's no longer true. You guys didn't, you guys not aware of that, are you? There is now a waterway that goes all the way from the Atlantic to the Pacific over the top of Canada. Global warming is causing such rapid melt of the ice pack at the top of the earth that you can now sail all the way through. The Northwest Passage that those guys 500 years ago were looking for is now there. And what's happening up there? Russia, Canada, and the United States are all planting their flags at the bottom of the ocean. Why? Because there's oil under there, lots of oil. And so literally, the Russians were the first to get there. Submersible goes down and sticks a flag in the bottom of the ocean. There it is, waving in the waters, the currents down there. Simply saying, this is ours. Is that impulse gone? Absolutely not, that flag planting. Look at us. We went to the moon. What was the first thing that Neil Armstrong did? He jumped off the stair, and then he stuck an American flag on the moon. Why? Because we were the first to get there. And it's still there. And it only moves just slightly with the solar winds that come back and forth. But it's still there. Then the next thing I did, I think I, think I recall the next thing he did was to pull out a golf ball and take a swing at it to just see how far he could, you know, with no gravity or very little gravity. That must have been a lot of fun. That got turned into a Tiger Woods commercial that you've seen not too long ago in which he's up on the moon. Anyway, there you go. Okay, so the Portuguese are the first. Why? Why are the Portuguese the first? You're going to be looking for that as you go through. And here's the other question. How did, the, how did national character play into the clash of cultures that happened when these different nations made contact with these new, so-called new worlds? In what ways did their national character affect the outcome of those clashes of culture? So the Portuguese, the Spanish, the French, the English, they're all going to go out and explore. In what ways did their particular national character and culture impact the contact that they made with these so-called new worlds? Did the Spanish have a different experience in these cultural contacts because of something about being Spanish? something about being Portuguese, something about being English, or something about being French, okay? So the Portuguese are the, are the first, and uh, Prince Henry the Navigator, he's the, uh, he's the, the nobleman who is uh, truly the underwriter. He's the great, he's an explorer himself, and he's also somebody who is pushing um, to get other people to explore. He's the guy who negotiates funding for explorers, so he's really a key figure in this. And you can place them right smack in the middle of the Renaissance, as you can see by the dates. Okay. So Prince Henry's explorations uh, are largely uh, they're successful, and they're so successful that, in fact, he begins a navigational school in which he begins to teach um, young sailors the, the many technologies that are now available for navigation and how to navigate, how to reduce risk, so on and so forth. This is, in fact, going on today, every single day of the week. If you go down to Sand Island Access Road, and as you go down, heading down towards, on the right-hand side over there, there is the Hokulea Learning Center. And every single night of the week, there's some master navigator who's teaching a class to young people of your age 
about navigating the Hokulea in the Pacific or, or um, long-distance navigation in the Pacific. So this, this idea has not gone away at all. Okay. So these early Portuguese explorers then are first traveled down to the African coast. My daughter was there a couple of years ago in Ghana and saw some of these original Portuguese forts, um, some of which is a little disturbing because they were the first to begin to pull African slaves and ship some of them back to Europe, although the slavery in Europe didn't last very long. But mostly they were going to ship them to the West Indies uh, where they would become the labor for sugar plantations in the West Indies, which would gain Europeans fabulous amounts of money because people were really developing a sweet tooth. They wanted sugar for their tea, especially in England. So the Portuguese first explore the African coast, and then they reach out across the Atlantic to the West Indies, and then you can start to see that there's a circular route here of products. And of course, they would build these military forts as they went. So this is the early Portuguese slave trade. And what they would do is play off one monarch, one African monarch against another. When these monarchs were in conflict with each other, there would be wars. And the spoils of those wars would be the prisoners that were taken. And those prisoners, Africans, would be sold to the Portuguese. And then the Portuguese would shift them off to the West Indies, where they were developing these sugar plantations. And you could see what would happen. So what's the next thing that the Portuguese would begin to do with these African monarchs? They would begin to ship them guns so that they could have better wars with each other, which would then yield more slaves, and also alcohol, which would fuel the thing. There's a real story, a narrative, that emerges out of this. Um, and we're getting closer and closer. We're within 170 years of the beginnings of the first exploration of North America, which would ultimately transcribe into our own American history. Okay, This is a Bar Bartolomeu Diaz. He's uh, notable because he's the first to round um, the Cape of Good Hope. So he's the first one to go around the southern tip of Africa. So out of Europe, down the Atlantic, down Africa, around the southern tip, and then up into the Indian Ocean, again, looking for spices in India. So where these guys went was absolutely critically important because there's no canals across the top of the Mediterranean, doesn't go all the way over to the Indian Ocean. There's a large landmass in between. His sailing around the Cape of Good Hope is a, a big moment in navigation. And then um, later, there's going to be the sailing around the tip of South America, which uh, Magellan would do, which is another breakthrough. Okay, So over time, you start to see contact with cultures. This is the clash of cultures or contact with cultures that you begin to see as the ex these explorers actually reach um, their destination. And as they go, they begin to negotiate with the governmental bodies that they come in contact with. For example, here in the Congo, what kind of commercial and or political treaties can we arrange so that we actually have exclusive rights to be able to trade with you and to move your products, which Europeans desire, uh, negotiation for slaves, et cetera, et cetera. And so the Europeans are using their now quickly developing skills at coming in contact with people and using uh, you know, uh, treaty skills and writing skills and critical thinking skills and all of that to begin to negotiate their way into these cultures to gain what it is that they want. Yeah. Where were the spices at? Where the spices were actually mostly in India or oh, in the Indo-European continent there. 
So that's why they kept pushing around. Although there's lots of, lots of awesome stuff that they were after, especially precious minerals like gold and diamonds and things like that. But penetrating into the interior of Africa was not quite there yet. That's going to take some time. But mostly they're after these Asian spices um, in places like India, Malaysia, and all of that. Yeah. Um, why did the Africans <coughs> agree to like, the slaves and stuff? Because it meant money for them. Oh, because they the get money and So the Portuguese, um, and then later the Spanish and the English, are coming with resources. They begin to use those resources to exploit uh, these cultures. Okay, so this is Vasco da Gama. He's the first to actually reach India by going all the way around the bottom. And when he gets to India, he begins to negotiate with them um, on the spices issue. But another very important product is starting to loom onto the horizon, and that's cloth. That what, what the Indians had was, uh, that was certain kinds of products like, or, or uh, um, certain kinds of agricultural products like cotton that could act, or silk, that could actually be spun into very fine cloth, which Europeans very much desired, as you know from the Renaissance. And you start to see how people dress. And the more comfortably and extravagantly they dress, the more Europeans are going to press out into these areas to negotiate for both the raw product and also for finished products, especially finished silks from China. So you see they're pushing, pushing, pushing. But this is all around Africa and into India. But it's only a matter of time now before they make the leap across the Atlantic. Okay, So the Portuguese Empire um, uh, lands. This is in Calcutta and in India. And again, you, this, this image is um, very suggestive because you see that they come dressed in all of their finery. They're making a great first impression. It's an impression that's designed uh, to intimidate or to show how Europe is a superior culture. The flag and, of course, the ships. And these ships must have been truly a wonder. And of course, they're well armed. And you can see what's developing here. And then we're going to pick this up tomorrow with Jared Diamond's film, Guns, Germs, and Steel. OK, so the Spanish and the Portuguese are the first. The Portuguese are the first. The Spanish follow on top of that. And they both end up in Asia and in Africa. So they're really the first to benefit from this exploration. And one of the ways that the Spanish benefited, because they're, they're really the first to penetrate really deeply into what we now call Central America, where the Aztecs and the Mayans and the Incas were, that they're the first to really benefit from what they found there. And what they found there was gold, and more or less, in some cases, a lot more. And it wasn't necessarily extracting the gold from the ground. That had been done by the cultures that had been living there for centuries, the Mayas, the Intecs, and the, the Aztecs, the Mayans, and the Incas. And you guys know from your study in world cultures that these were cultures that valued gold. They, they knew uh, its ceremonial use. And when that gold began to flow back into Europe, it was uh, like a bomb hitting Europe. All of a sudden, you have an explosion of gold coins. And if you're a merchant in Europe, in Madrid, who's selling, I don't know, bolts of cloth, and all of a sudden you begin to notice, Brittany, that people are carrying a lot more little bags of gold coins than, 
than, you, than they used to. It just seems like there's a lot more uh, out there. What would you do? Sell my cloth. You would sell your cloth for how much? More, more right? This is called inflation. When there's a perception that there's more money in circulation, your tendency as a business is to raise your prices. And Spain experienced the so-called price revolution before anybody else. And as the gold came in in large quantities, the price of products just went through the roof. In some cases, putting it well beyond the reach of normal people. And you see further ahead now that there may be the possibility of social unrest. Okay, hang on, I gotta. Okay, so the Dutch now get involved in this. They go into the East Indies and in the area called Java. That's the area that experienced the giant earthquake a few years ago. We're now all the way around the other side of India um, and down in that East India area. So they're getting involved in it, and you can start to see that the momentum, uh, momentum is beginning to build. Um, this is the discovering of the new world, so we're going to get contact with um, the so-called Americas. Um, we get Christopher Columbus, who is the first person to actually make contact with the North American continent, although he's a little south, he's in the West Indies, but he's really the first person. And again, his story is a complex and interesting and tragic story in some cases because he really truly thought he was in India. He was never disabused over four voyages of that idea, and yet he was so far away from it. So he's an accidental explorer, but he ends up becoming a national holiday for us, which, by the way, is no longer called Columbus Day. It was when I was in school. It's now called Discoverer's Day. And even that's causing problems for people, like here in Hawaii. There's always protesters who come out to talk about what actually happened when those discoverers arrived and all that. But nevertheless, the information that he transmitted back to Europe, and because he was successful and his ships all didn't go down to the bottom of the ocean, he opens the door for what would later become the um, settlement of North America. Okay, So out of this, amazingly enough, because of Columbus, the accidental explorer, we get something called the Columbian Exchange. Absolutely critical concept here. Okay? The Columbian Exchange. So if you look at the Atlantic, on this side is Europe, on this side is now America. This circular pattern is the movement of plants and animals and products back and forth and back and forth. And your old, my old textbooks always portrayed it as if there was so much that was brought from the New World to Europe. Like, for example, the tomato, which was never known, believe it or not, in Italy prior to Columbus's voyages. What? Shocking, I know. But the tomato actually comes from the New World. So the story that was told to me is one of a constant flow from the New World to Europe and that Europeans had changed European culture and all that. When, in fact, there is a whole other side to the story, which is that Europeans took things to the New World, which changed the New World. For example, North America did not have the horse. Europeans brought the horse to North America and fundamentally changed the native people's who were living in North America. Those who adapted to the horse and began to use it were tended to be, be more dominant over other cultures. Um, and then, as you know, in the Columbian Exchange, one of the things that Europeans brought to the New World was disease. And of course, that you know wipes out a huge. 
But what people don't know is that there, were, there was one disease in particular that was not known in Europe that made it from the New World back to Europe called syphilis, which is a sexually transmitted disease. That was, they call it, they, they call it the, uh, the, uh, the native's revenge on Columbus because, in fact, it just roared through European society and devastating because its ultimate effect after you go through all the horrible symptoms we don't want to talk about, its ultimate effect is brain damage and if it goes untreated and they didn't really have any treatments, they thought that sometimes um, inject or, or placing in open source mercury might actually, mercury, we know how poisonous that is. Well, yeah, it probably would have killed the disease and the person too if you didn't want to be treated. So anyway, the Columbian exchange is actually a lot more complex than you or I might have gotten in our early textbooks. So plants, animals, and foodstuffs, migrations and population shifts, and disease. And these are the, this is the flow of material and uh, of people and things, and there's so much to talk about and so much to think about in the Columbian exchange. Okay, off we go. All right, so individually in the Columbian exchange, these are items that came from the New World back to Europe. So the potato, coffee, cocoa, the pumpkin, corn, squash, tomatoes, avocados, all of these things end up back in Europe, and Europeans would develop a taste for it. Cocoa was a horribly bitter brew that the Aztecs actually didn't drink. They used cocoa as a form of coin. It was extremely valuable because it was scarce. So they used it as an actual form of currency. They did brew a cocoa, but I've actually tasted that because my brothers grow the cocoa bean, and they did an experiment in which they tried to do it exactly the way the Aztecs would have done it. It is so bitter, you can't stand it. So what did the Europeans do? They added sugar and milk. And to that, out of that, then came the cocoa that we like to have on a cold evening like we're going to have tonight, right? Nothing at all like what the Aztecs would have had. So the Europeans' contact with cocoa was sort of like a, a big humdrum because for them, they already had coins already. It was kind of hard to see the value of the individual bean, but the Aztecs saw it that way, okay? Obviously, the potato would have an enormous impact on Europe. It's a staple. It has now become a staple of English, uh, Scottish, Welsh, Irish cuisine. Uh, it's a staple all up and down the continent. And yeah, I know, I'm sorry. Okay, now going the other way to the New World. Wheat was introduced into the New World. All of these different vegetables, were, pigs were never known, chickens were never known, cattle, horse, sheep, none of this was known. And Jared Diamond is going to really dig into this because it's from Europeans' contact with these animals that they developed the immunities that were necessary to not die from diseases like smallpox or the flu. It was the immunities that they brought with them that protected them, but it's from diseases of these animals that the, the great germs would be unleashed on native populations, and he'll trace that um, for you tomorrow. Didn't bring that, then we would probably like die from getting the flu. Um, no, actually, it's that Europeans. It took a long, long time for Europeans to develop the immunities that these particular animals carried. So, if had they not taken them to the New World, had the Europeans themselves just gone to the New World, one way or the other, those diseases would have arrived. Mm -hmm. 
but no matter what, the, the natives there had no immunity because they had not been around those particular animals, okay? So here's the diseases, smallpox, measles, influenza, whooping cough, and scholars argue long and hard about how many native peoples died, but a recent scholarship that I've seen puts it at around 20 to 25 million, or basically about 80 to 90 percent of the population. And so here we find potentially the answer to the question, why did they call it the New World? Because the earliest explorers unleashed diseases that moved so rapidly and killed so quickly that by the time later explorers got there, um, populations were so decimated, they would have thought to themselves that they were entering an uninhabited land. But of course, recent archaeology is now beginning to unearth the extent to which these lands were, in fact, populated, and that story is changing. Okay? All right, so Americo Vespucci, he's just one of those explorers, and he just happens to come in contact with North America, and a cartographer just happens to put his name on the map that he draws that comes from Vespucci's data, and the rest is history, as they say. No, if, if, if it had been Columbus, then Columbus's data might have been put in the hands of a tar cartographer who might have put down on the map Columbus land. But in fact, Columbus didn't make it to North America. He was in the West Indies down to the south, Car the Caribbean, and Cuba down there. But the New World is, turns out to be a continent that goes from the tip of South America all the way up to the top of Canada, right? So Vespucci is the first one to hit the continent of North America. In the, in the area that we would now call Virginia or North Carolina, South Carolina. And it's just because he hits there at that right time in the right place um, that, in fact, uh, we are called America. Okay, so real fast, Hernando Cortez is another explorer. Pizarro is one we're going to look at tomorrow because he's the subject of um, uh, Jared Diamond's talk. Ferdinand Magellan is the first to actually circumnavigate or go all the way around the world. That's a map. This is actually a model of Magellan's ship, and I took this picture because it was docked in Honolulu Harbor. These band of lunatics are actually sailing around the world again to try and copy his voyage. What kind of crazies do things like this? This was at Aloha Tower. Fantastic. In a dead calm day, this ship was going like this. Dead calm. Imagine 15-foot seas. And these guys were gone for three years. And they actually made it back. Here's another angle. This is what Keynote can do for you. That's the voyage that they're taking now. That tells you the size of the ship. It is tiny. 40 guys on that boat. Okay? And because we've run out of time, I'll have to leave it there. Uh, I'll pick it up uh, tomorrow and finish up real quick with that. There's just a few more slides to go. Okay, it's working. And I'm going to go back and start right here again, because I was rushing at the end of the day yesterday. Okay, so let's stop and, and go slow for just one sec and contemplate really what Magellan was attempting to accomplish here. This, it was one thing to sail across the Atlantic towards 
an Asian world that was relatively known to Europeans through land contact that had gone the other direction, right? So when Marco Polo went east and across India and Eurasia and into China and brought back those stories, that was relatively known to Europeans. And so going across the Atlantic was a great leap of faith but it still was relatively known that there was something out there and that they were going to encounter it in a certain amount of time. But with Magellan, it's a totally different thing. He's attempting to not only sail across the Atlantic and then sail down South America, go around the tip of South America, up into an ocean that was unknown to people, the Pacific. And why is it called the Pacific? Because it's peaceful as compared to the Atlantic to go up into the Pacific work his way across the Pacific to Asia, around the West Indies, back underneath uh, India, and then ultimately return back to Europe again. When you, when you really try to contemplate what was on their minds, it would be as if there were astronauts who weren't content with just going to the moon. They wanted to go to Mars, and maybe even onwards to Jupiter, and you have to really think about the idea that there, you know, I don't know, you guys probably haven't seen 2001, A Space Odyssey, but if, if and when you do, it's a total classic of filmmaking, Stanley Kubrick, uh, spaceship going to Jupiter, you would have had to have thought that they assumed that they were never coming back, that the odds against them coming back were, were truly not good. And then, again, as we saw in these slides yesterday, and again, I'm showing you a keynote technique here because it's called the thumb-through animation. When you see these slides and you see the size of this, again, there's a, a Coast Guard ship in the background. And even the Coast Guard ship, as small as, as it is, will dwarf this. Um, and look at how narrow the ship is um, and the way that it would have bobbed around in the ocean. And you know, 15-foot seas would have come up here. It's just mind-boggling when you think about it. How not only the human courage, but how exactly did this ship survive out there in the open ocean? And how is it that these men managed to live with each other for three years under that kind of pressure on the open ocean? Sometimes sailing along very quickly, sometimes in the doldrums where, uh, where you would sit for weeks and not even move an inch because there was no wind, you know, that sort of a thing. Okay. So there again, you see the modern equivalent. And this is what these bunch of lunatic crazies are trying to do. Uh, and there's a number of these kinds of uh, societies out there. One of them is trying to recreate the voyages of Captain Cook, um, doing the same thing. And again, we saw this yesterday just by, by comparison. Yeah. And again, look at how narrow and how this thing would have bobbed back and forth. And yet, it's still bowed out at the bottom. So in some ways, it was like a cork. Maybe that's what allowed it to survive. Okay. All right. So as we come down to the end then, and we noticed that there are a number of themes that motivated people to go out and explore the new world, not the least of which was the Catholic Church's desire to harvest souls, almost as if they were produce or uh, bushels of wheat or uh, bushels of corn or something, that this was the church, Mother Church, with its arms extended just like you've seen, you know, if you go to the Vatican, uh, to St. Peter's Basilica, and that those two big colonnades are like the arms pulling the souls into Mother Church. Uh, Christian missionaries, both Catholic and Protestant, 
head out into the new world to attempt to convert souls. And I'm just going to make one quick comment about this that's really important to consider. Okay, And I'm sort of hinting around that later when you have to really write about this, this is an important point. And the point is that there were really two kinds of people who went to the New World. There were, if, like from the Spanish, there were the conquistadors. There were those who went for military conquest and to exploit, to extract that which was useful to the country that had sent those people out. So gold, silver, mine, mi any kind of mined uh, material, metals, things like that. There were those people who went out. And then there were the Christian missionaries that went out. And what's of interest to us is the relationship between the two. On the one hand, the conquistadors probably could have given uh, a rip uh, about the people that they were exploiting. But these Catholic missionaries and Protestant missionaries, they were really interested in keeping these people alive. They didn't want them to be exploited to death because they were souls that were being harvested for the church. So you can see that the church actually provided, in some cases, a buffer against the abuses of the conquistadors or other explorers who went out not with the interests of the native peoples in mind. So uh, before we're quick to jump and blame and accuse everybody here of being exploitive, uh, we have to sort of pause and consider um, what the Catholic Church was really doing, which was in some ways buffering that pain and suffering. And by the way, if you ever get the time you choose to watch an absolutely fantastic film. Um, it's called The Mission with Jeremy Irons. Uh, and it, it, it uh, chronicles the arrival of the Jesuits in the Amazon region. And it's very poignant, and it's got one of the greatest soundtracks ever. Uh, and it's centered around uh, those falls in Brazil. I can't remember the name of them, but they're really spectacular, like Niagara Falls and the Jesuits' contact with the native peoples there. Okay. All right, so moving on. All right, so the Spanish, we tend to focus on the Spanish because the conquistadors dominate the history books because they made their way so far into Mexico, into, into um, Central America, because of their contact with the Aztecs and with the Mayans, and with the extraordinary story of their being able to conquer uh, and dominate much larger populations than themselves. And in fact, as exploitive as they were, uh, there's much that's revealed to us about those cultures. So we tend to focus on them a little bit more, and your text does as well. And so in the end, as they conquer those cultures, we start to see this hierarchical development of classes, which is actually merging, sorry, not merging, mirroring what's going on in Europe. So the Spanish at the top, the Creoles, who are these mixed people of Spanish and native, they have obviously intermingled with the populations. And those Creoles tended to be right below because they were partially European. And below that are the, the, the um, ruling classes of the native peoples. And then below that, the common person, him or herself. And again, this is a little bit skewed because you take this, this, and this, and squash it all up at the top. And then there's 90% of the population. So really, what the Europeans did is recreate Europe in Mesoamerica in Central America to a large extent. And they experienced the same kinds of pressures uh, that were being experienced in Europe as uh, the commoners, as the peasants began to assert their rights and so on and so forth. So we make a mistake 
if we assume that native peoples just simply passively laid down and took it all. They did not. They were, they were rebellious. They uh, fought back um, as much as they could if they weren't decimated by disease, uh, and so on and so forth. Okay? All right. So out of this exploitation, we get uh, a tremendous extraction of natural wealth found in the New World. Gold and silver plantations, part of Spanish colonies. And as I mentioned yesterday, this wealth in the form of, of minerals, gold, silver, copper, uh, gems, begins to flow back into Europe. And it has a bombshell impact on Europe's economy. So it's extractive of the New World and tends to put them in a dependent and subservient position but it has a tremendous impact on Europe in the sense that it begins to expand Europe's economy because it's now awash in cash, in real wealth that can be spent to develop Europe's economy. Okay? And obviously that was a primary source right there. The Brazil and the Portuguese tended to focus on South America and um, their wealth was largely derived from sugar and from rice. Um, rice is something that would have been known to Europeans, but sugar was uh, a commodity that would have been very rare and very expensive and, when, uh, and very much in demand, and especially for the English because they're heavy tea drinkers and it sweetened their tea. And once they got a taste for this sweetness, they couldn't get enough of it. And so you begin to see the development of large sugar plantations and rice plantations that would also become true for us in the Americas. Obviously, our story of slavery is connected to this. And so you see the Brazilian and Portuguese relationship is really all about sugar and how that sugar made its way to Europe and how it increased the wealth of Europe and decreased the wealth of these native cultures, depending on how you categorize wealth. Yeah. Um, so wait, like rice, did it come from Asia? Um, rice was already, yes, it did, but it was known to Europeans at this point. But sugar is relatively new as a product. I mean, they know about it. Beet sugar is something that Europeans had been using for a long time, but that is a much harder process to extract the sugar. Sugarcane suddenly allows it to come in in volumes, and it really satisfies their, their um, taste for sweetness. Okay, we also mentioned the French, because the French uh, colonized what is now known as the Mississippi River Valley. And that's up here on this map here. You can see it really clearly under the light. Here's New Orleans right here. And you can see the Mississippi going all the way up. And the French colonized this all the way up into North America and up into Canada. And as a result of that, they really open up this region and create a contact point for English settlers who come to the East Coast and attempting to make their way in that direction. And you guys will recall from, I don't know, earlier US history that you might have gotten in grade school that one of the uh, dramatic moments in US history in 1803 is the Louisiana Purchase. That's from Louis uh, going all the way back to the Louis. Um, it's Napoleon who sells it for $15 million to the United States and triples the size of the United States at that time, all largely French-controlled territory. Okay? And here's uh, La Salle arriving in the Mississippi. We also know of English exploration, but that tended to be more to the Northwest, where Maine and all the states of New England are. Um, Henry VIII is a key figure here, as he uses his wealth to fund 
explorers who go out into this region and they settle what will now become New England and will develop into our English colonies which will later rebel and become their own United States. Um, and we see the English colonization of the, of the Northwest, but what they were attempting to do was to find that Northwest Passage that would take them across the top and down into the Pacific and therefore to Asia. They never were able to do that, but they kept pushing, pushing, pushing. Um, Henry Hudson is one of those explorers. The Hudson River, which flows right past Manhattan, New York City, is named after him. It's the river that that uh, flight landed in the other day or two weeks ago or whatever. Uh, that's the Hudson River that uh, he came down into. Okay, And so what we uh, see then are all of these explorations all really kind of coming together at the same time into this area called the New World that stretches all the way from Canada to the tip of South America. And if there's one common theme to all of it, it's that the importation of slaves from Africa allowed for the opportunity for great wealth because as free labor, it allowed for the maximization, the maximizing of profit, the minimizing of cost. If cost is only calculated according to what you have to pay or not pay labor. If you don't care about human life, then obviously it, it's a cost reduction. And obviously over time we've begun to rethink that and look at that and it's been emphasized more and more in the textbooks. Wait, so the slaves allowed... For the reduction in cost because you didn't have to pay your labor to grow that sugar. Uh, they were slaves and if they died you went and got more. And you encouraged their procreation so that you would have additional units of labor and that also increased your profits because then you could put more land into sugar production and create more sugar, which would then be sold in Europe. Okay, so on the negative side, but on the positive side, depending on how you want to look at it, we see the development of global trade. So here's this big theme that we come to at the very end of this whole thing, and that is that the Columbian Exchange, which begins in 1492, results 200 years later in really the first global economy. This is the moment when the world economy starts to look like a global economy that's really uh, uh, intermeshed in many, many ways. So as a result of that, you get all kinds of complex clashes of cultures as, these, as this global economy begins to develop. And goods and, and, goods and uh, good products begin to flow back and forth and have literally bombshell-type impacts on cultures. The potato had a tremendous impact on Europe because it allowed for a, a starch that could be easily grown. It could feed the masses, and that causes a population increase. The horse introduced in North America has a bombshell impact because it allows native tribes uh, to reorganize themselves, and some begin to dominate, and others begin to fade as a result of the way that the horse is used in warfare and so on and so forth. That story just goes on and on. Okay, so we come down to the end. And we have this key term, very, very key term, called uh, triangular trade. Uh, you might have been exposed to it before. But here, take a look on screen. This is how it works. Okay. So we have trade first with Africa, trade in guns, alcohol, and other precious commodities for slaves. But initially, slaves that go back to Europe, and there's not much use for them there because there's a huge 
peasant population that needs work. So you don't gain much by getting slaves. But if you're to head out to the New World, as Europeans did, then you start to see the movement of slaves and mass quantities over to the Americas. And then you start to see the return of raw products like sugar, lumber, uh, uh, raw cloth or raw uh, thread or raw, what am I, what's the word I'm looking for? I can't think of the word about it. Raw cotton. Raw cotton comes back from the Americas to, to Europe where it is refined into finished cloth and then sold in markets for a very high value. So what, you, so what you really see here is what's called mercantilism. Last term that we really need to know. Mercantilism down here. And what mercantilism means is national, it's an increase in national wealth through the extraction of wealth from other locations and other cultures. So the idea is to have the wealth flowing back in your direction. This is not about equal trade. This is about trying to extract everything that you can in order to increase national wealth. That's mercantilism. And you'll see that term show up in a really big way when you get into US history next year, okay? So this is known as the triangular trade. Wow, so much has been written uh, about this. So many films have been done about this. Amistad, has anybody seen Amistad? Amistad, tremendous film, Steven Spielberg uh, did uh, with uh, uh, Anthony Hopkins about the African slave trade. I mean, you know, there's just rows and rows and rows of books based on everything that happened here. And of course, what happened with our version of American slavery and so on and so forth. Okay, so I think that that's the end. So questions? Those are kind of just like, yeah. They when you say like it's not equal wealth, like it's not equal, like they're they're not in the business of yeah. of, of so trading with natives. Like, I know I, I use this term probably wrongly, but like hustling them. Yeah, okay. yeah, absolutely. Exploiting is probably the yeah, term that you'll see more in the textbooks. Term, but, but it's a complex history that you're you're really going to have to pay attention to. It's a complex history because there were benefits that were brought to the so-called New World. Things, inventions that Europeans brought with them, new technologies that may have improved lives. On balance, that's the question, on balance. So the last question then is, on balance, and this might have been one of the take-home essay questions that you picked, on balance, did those who lived in the New World gain or benefit from European contact, or in the end, was it largely negative for in terms of European contact? We're totally into that discussion in the blog uh, in talking about guns, germs, and steel, which film that we're going to watch now. Okay, so that's a PowerPoint or keynote on the age of exploration.